we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm the director of the center. And our guest this week is Chuck Holton, former U.S. Army Ranger, author, war correspondent. The reason I wanted to talk to him was because he's lived in Panama for a number of years and has followed, not just observed, but actually reported on the migrant flow through there. We did a panel discussion and wrote several weeks ago now, about this issue of migration through the Darien Gap. That's a jungle in eastern Panama, western Colombia, that migrants from overseas especially traverse on their way through Central America and then Mexico to the U.S. border. And Chuck has seen this on the ground firsthand, and so I wanted him just to tell us a little bit about it. Chuck, I appreciate your uh, doing this. Thanks for joining us. Hey, very happy to be here. And I wanted to start, maybe if you could just tell listeners just a couple minutes on how you ended up in Panama, sort of what's your story and how did you get to the position to see what's going on in Panama? I came to Panama the first time in 1988 as a young army ranger, right after I'd made it into the unit. We came down here to do jungle warfare training. Yeah. Uh, we came back again in 1989 and did more jungle warfare training. And then came back a third time later that year in December for the invasion of Panama. This was so removing the, the Noriega? Only time where soldiers have trained in the country that they ended up invading. <laughs> right. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> that kind of gave me a love for Panama and came back years later to do research on one of my books and ended up moving here for one year with my family. We enjoyed that tremendously and then went back to the States. And uh, eventually, about five years after that, in 2012, just decided, actually, it was really Obamacare that drove me down here, but uh, that's another story. Oh, interesting. Just, okay. Yeah, that's a different podcast. <laughs> right, right. But it saves us a lot of money living here for many reasons, but most of all because of the taxes that I saved not living in the United States. Interesting. Did you expect to? encounter the migration issue? How have you become familiar with that? No, not at all. I, I had been reporting on the immigration issue from the U.S. southern border since about probably 2007 or so. Were you associated with a particular like publication or outlet, or were you kind of doing freelance? I've been making television since about 2003, when the war first started in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that, that came about because in 2002, I wrote my first book, and we had shopped around that book to a lot of different news outlets that had a military theme to it. And I started getting phone calls to comment on the war. One of the more regular places that asked me to comment was the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN News, mm -hmm. out of Virginia Beach, Virginia. As it turned out, they had like 40 producers, but none of their producers wanted to go 
to Iraq and cover the war. And so they called and asked if I would do it, and I jumped at the chance. So I kind of became their de facto war correspondent at that point. And then it just sort of expanded from there to other clients, Fox News, Newsmax, and others. And so now I have kind of a stable of regular clients that I report for. Interesting. So what did you see at our southern border first? In other words, is that kind of how was sort of your introduction to the issue of immigration? Right. Because my specialty was wars and disasters, I didn't start right away reporting on the migration issue, but got asked to go down there with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, and he was working for Fox. I was working as his cameraman for a while, and we went down there and met some of the ranchers along the border, and there was some violence you know, happening and that sort of thing. So right. that's what got me acquainted with that, and then that sort of became part of my beat, and I would go down there from time to time and do reporting you know, on the crisis as it continued to rise all the way to the present day. So how about in Panama? In other words, when did you start being aware of there being an immigration issue? Because a lot of people don't really get that Panama is basically part of America's border security, in a sense. Right. You know, as you start to cover that issue, you start to realize that there are push factors and pull factors that are causing the problem. And so in order to dig deeper into the root causes of migration, and not just root causes of what's causing it, but also how the process works, Mm -hmm. I I became very curious on, you know, how are these people getting from Bangladesh and Syria and all over the world, all over Africa, into the United States? How, How does that process work? And so I started sort of tracking it backwards. I first went down to the Mexico-Guatemala border. Hmm. I went to Honduras. I started walking with some of these caravans that were coming up to the United States and trying to understand the whole issue better. When we moved back to Panama in 2012, full-time, I realized that there were thousands of migrants walking through the Darien Gap because the local media covers that. And so I thought, well, wow, I need to investigate this some more. So we went down, I think, the first time in 2012 and started covering the Darien Gap. It's a fascinating part of the story, for one. Very adventurous, very, very dangerous, as your listeners probably already know. And started getting to know the members of the Panamanian Border Police made a documentary in, I think, 2016 about them, about Centerfront. And that got me some, well, goodwill with those guys. So then it became easier. They would call me when they had something newsworthy. Interesting. And started, you know, kind of became the guy that they called when they wanted to get the news out about what was happening in Panama. So have you been in the Darien Gap? I mean, have you traveled in there? Many times. Many times. Yeah. What's it like? Well, it's the most extreme topography on planet Earth, pretty much. And it's about a, well, depends on how you measure it, 48 to 60 miles of virgin triple canopy rainforest that has no roads going through it, but now has an actual superhighway of just trails and tracks that have been trammeled down by these migrants coming through. I've never walked all the way through in one go because you are 
personally guaranteed to get robbed or killed going wow. through there. And so I've gone as far as I can go on the Colombian side until I literally was costed by the smugglers and told, if you go any further, we're going to rob you. Wow. Well, at least they gave you a warning. I mean, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And that was a little uncomfortable, but then we've backtracked from the Panamanian side as far as we can go without encountering the same problems. At first we thought, I thought it was like the FARC or some kind of you know rebel group that was robbing people. But what we found is that it's more just there are people who live in there. Mm-hmm. They're typically indigenous tribes, Panamanian tribes from the Embera tribe. And in one sense, you know, what they're doing is horrific. There are lots of Embera who assist the migrants, who make money from the migrants by giving them boat rides and selling them food and all sorts of things right. as they work their way through. But there are other Embera Indians who take advantage of the migrants by robbing and raping and killing them as they come through there. Sometimes those are one and the same. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. We had one of their leaders, mayor of one of the towns down there. Yeah, Mayor Francisco Agape. Yeah, I have right. set that up. I appreciate that. And I thought was really informative, I think, for people. And just for listeners, the video of that event is on our website at cis.org. Yeah, if they haven't seen that, they need to go see it. It's a fascinating discussion. So you accompanied Congressman Tom Tiffany who on his own dime without press conferences or anything like that went to see basically a fact-finding trip in the Darien Gap. How did that go? Yeah, they contacted us and said they wanted to get in there and weren't sure how to go about doing it. We went ahead and set up all of the logistics for that. Michael Yan did the heavy lifting on most of it. Mm -hmm. And then we picked them up at the airport and drove them down to the Darien, put them in dug out canoes and paddled up river about three and a half hours to the, it's the very first village that the migrants come upon once they make it across the border into Panama. They've already at that point been walking for about six days and many of them are just very close to death. They have bodies float down the river right there. As a matter of fact, the Indians who populate that village of Bajo Chiquito, there's about 400 full-time residents. And at any given time, there could be one to 3,000 migrants in their village. Wow. They have no electricity. They have no running water. They get their water out of the river. But that's harder to do now because there are so many bodies in the river that the river's polluted. Unbelievable. And so those people who live in that village, on one sense, it's been a tremendous economic boom to them. In another sense, it's completely destroyed their village and their culture. And so some of their younger men are the ones who are going out and robbing people. And the migrants tell us that they'll get robbed the day before they make it to the village. And once they make it to the village, they find all the things they had stolen for sale in the village. They can purchase their own things back. Unbelievable. So it is a real problem. They're aware of the problem. Centerfront has, the border police have a group of soldiers stationed in the village itself. But there's really no way to stop it. There's just far too much area to cover. Typically, what the centerfront guys will do is if they hear that there's somebody dead upriver, they will go up and search for the body and recover the body. But other than that, there's not much that those guys are able to do. Does this, in your experience, has it corrupted the border police as well? In other words, presumably there's, you know, the smuggling groups are trying to get them to you know, sort of pay him off to look the other way. Do you, have you noticed that happening too? No, 
Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the border police in Panama are, along with basically all the police in Panama, are probably some of the least corrupt that you'll find in all of Latin America. Hmm. The border police are vehemently against those smugglers, partially because they've actually lost some of their own guys in firefights with uh, them. Okay. And so it's not that there is no corruption, but I would say there is surprisingly little considering where we are. That's interesting. Presumably these people, obviously, when they pass through the Darien Gap and then they pass by these various Indian communities, at some point they're getting to presumably Panama City or, or at least the more inhabited parts of it. What do ordinary Panamanians think about this flow of Well, people? see, ordinary Panamanians don't see any of this, and they only hear about it in the news because the Panamanian government has done a very good job of sort of bottlenecking the migrants into these camps down in the Darien. Mm -hmm. There's only one road coming out of the Darien. It's the Pan American Highway. And it picks up in a town called Yavisa and goes north all the way to, as, as many people know, all the way to Alaska. Right. But for that gap in the Darien, there is no road. So once the migrants make it to the road, essentially, they're stuck. There's no, you know, lots of ways for them to go. As a matter of fact, that road actually is it has like a moat at one point. It goes right through the middle of a lake. Mm -hmm. And so even to try to trek around the checkpoint would be very, very difficult. And so they're able to capture pretty much everybody that comes through. At that point, the Panamanian government becomes part and parcel of the smuggling operation that moves these migrants north. Right. The migrants have to pay for it. It costs $40. When they get to that village of Bajo Chiquito, part of the job of the centerfront guys is to register all of those migrants by name. And then the migrants have to pay $40. That gets them a boat ride out to the road and then a bus ride from the road to Costa Rica. Hmm. And the government is very careful not to let them stop in Panama City. They don't trickle as they do in many other countries. They don't just sort of trickle north. The Panamanian government has a program they call the Controlled Flow Program. Right. That they, they sort of coordinate with Costa Rica, and then they put these migrants on buses. They move them to the Costa Rica border. They drop them off. Migrants walk across, get picked up by Costa Rica, get put on a bus, taken to a camp in San Jose, get taken on another bus to the Nicaraguan border, and dropped off, and so on and so forth, all the way into Mexico. Interesting. So, actually, our own Todd Benzman has written some about this controlled yeah, flow yeah. process. Well, one thing I wanted to ask before I wanted to follow up on this controlled flow issue is, why is that gap in the Pan-American Highway? In other words, if except for that gap, you could drive from Alaska, I mean, maybe not quite to no, Tierra del Fuego, but you could go most of the way to southern South America. Why is that gap there? It's just because the terrain is so extreme that it would be virtually impossible to make a road through there. There's a swamp in there the size of Delaware. <laughs> and it just has never been worth it. It's also sort of a speed bump, at least, for this mass migration. But in the past, it's also been a, a hindrance to the drug flow coming north. There's never been neither the wherewithal or the inclination to build that road. Interesting, interesting. So as far as this controlled flow thing, I mean, the Panamanian government is moving these people because they don't want them in Panama, obviously. So they're getting them out as quickly as possible. The Costa Ricans are doing the same. You know, the, the end of the line is here in the United States. I mean, it seems like, 
you know, I mean, we created Panama. It seems like we could at least somehow twist their arms to work with us to deport people, even if they don't want them to stay there. Uh, You know, why? I mean, do you have any sense of why we even tolerate this? The United States does work with the Panamanian government in order to, number one, register all these people and run them through whatever databases we can. We actually have U.S. Border Patrol agents in the camps in the Darien Gap. Hmm. And they have biometric equipment that they use to register everybody's irises and fingerprints and things like that as they come through. And they've actually caught a number of people who were on terror watch lists from Iraq and other places, Yemen, just in the last year. Hmm. They probably catch, I would say, probably about one or two people a month coming through there. Okay. Most of the time, people don't hear about that, but it is a way that we you know, work with the Panamanians. Now, to your question, why don't we pressure the Panamanians to completely stop this? Number one, we don't have much sway anymore over Panama. Even though we helped Panama become a nation, we helped put the you know, current constitution in place after the invasion in 1989. We've done a lot for Panama, and many Panamanians see themselves as sort of younger little brothers of the United States. Right. Be that as it may, the U.S. is competing for the interests of Panama with China. Oh my and God. China is very full court press on talking Panama into doing and cajoling Panama into doing what it wants. So we really don't have as much influence over Panama as we would like. And that's a constant source of frustration for the diplomats from the U.S. Embassy here that I know and talk to on a regular basis. Wow. So any thoughts on you know, what the United States could do to reduce this flow? I mean, presumably part of it is obviously the pull factor that if they get here, that the Biden administration lets them go. Absolutely. The Remain in Mexico policy effectively ended this mass migration. Right. It at least put a stop to it for a time. And that was noticeable to you down there on the ground? Without a doubt. The, the number of people coming through the Darien Gap reduced to a trickle. Wow. One of the things that we could do is the United States has given lots of equipment to Panama, off-road vehicles, boats, and things like that to try to bolster their border force and help them be more able to capture people as they come through or whatever. And we've got a large DEA contingent here in Panama that helps the Panamanians capture drugs and stuff that are coming through. However, we could go a lot further. It would be much cheaper for the United States, considering what it costs us for every illegal migrant that enters the U.S., according to the Federation for American Immigration Reform, every illegal family that enters the United States costs us about $60,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of those numbers, if I was president, let's put it this way, I would go to the Panamanian president and say, I have a proposal for you. We will pay to build camps in the Darien Gap, build large camps, as big as they need to be. Because Panama right now, a very small country of 4 million people, is spending about $6 million a month just on food for the migrants that are in transit here. Hmm. Okay, So we could save Panama a whole lot of money by offering to pay those bills and say, look, what we're asking is that you put out the word that if you come into Panama, illegally through the Darien Gap, 
you must stay in Panama for at least 12 months in one of these camps in the Darien. Right. And if you did something like that, you would cut off about 30,000 migrants a month. Hmm. I know this is effective because when the COVID pandemic caused Panama to shut its borders, it shut the airports, it shut the borders, it shut everything, it shut everybody in their homes. It was essentially house arrest for like 10 and a half months here. It was Mm -hmm. terrible. You could not leave your home for more than an hour a week to go shopping for 10 and a half months in Panama. It was horrific. And during that time, the number of people coming into Panama came to a complete halt illegally through the Darien Gap. Because those who were stuck in Panama, who were already you know, on the way when that happened, right. when they arrived at that camp in Panama, Panamanians said, get comfortable, you're staying here until this pandemic is over. And they were stuck here for a year. So they weren't moving them along. They did not move them along. Interesting. They, the migrants got so frustrated, they started setting their own tents on fire. Wow. And the only thing that's caused Panama to restart the control flow process was that the Panamanians in the villages down there started getting their homes and cars burned up by these migrants who were so angry at being stuck there for so long. Hmm. And so the Panamanian villagers came to the Panamanian police and said, if you don't do something to get rid of these people, we will. Right, right. (laughs) Wow. And so then the Panamanians decided to go ahead and move them along. But until they reopened the borders, the number of people coming across from Colombia dropped to virtually zero. I think they had like eight people in a year. Wow. Jeez. And so if the United States made it worth Panama's while to just announce, you're going to stay here for at least a year until we decide you can leave, there's going to be a one-year hiatus for your trip, the flow would stop. Right. I'm absolutely certain the flow would stop. These people continually make their decisions based on the policies of the countries they will be traveling through. And so I just returned actually two days ago from Cucuta, Colombia, along the Venezuelan border. And I was talking to Venezuelans because about half the Venezuelans that leave Venezuela now go north to the United States and about half go to Chile south. Oh, interesting. And so I was asking them what helps you make a decision whether or not you're going to go north or south. And what they told me was exactly that. They said it's dependent on the policies of the governments of the countries we have to traverse. So the Mexican government just instituted a policy that as of the 21st of January, any Venezuelans entering Mexico have to obtain a visa. That's never been the case before. And that's because the United States is putting pressure on Mexico because we just went from, I think, 3,600 Venezuelan asylee claims in 2020 to 50,000 asylee claims in 2021. So by putting a little pressure on Mexico, Mexico instituted a visa requirement, and now many more Venezuelans are choosing to go to Chile. So right before I went to Cucuta, I went down to Bolivia and went to the Bolivia-Chile border and filmed thousands of Venezuelan migrants walking across the Altiplano, the high mountain desert, into Chile illegally. Chile is now overwhelmed. Their people are protesting because there are so many migrants entering Iquique and some of those other cities in Chile that it's causing a lot of problems. And the new Chilean president has deployed the military to the border with Bolivia to try to put a stop to it. 
And all that's doing is creating an international incident. What it does is it pushes the Venezuelans to walk farther and farther and farther to get around the Chilean military. And the further they go into the desert, the more people die. Wow. That's interesting that, I mean, Chile's new president is a pretty hardcore left winger. It's he is, interesting he is. that he's using the military to stop. He's basically making a kind of a pitiful effort to look like he's doing uh-huh. something along the border. But in reality, I mean, literally, the border crossing at the place where I was there up in the high mountain desert in a place called Pisiga, they had soldiers stationed every 50 yards or so for about a quarter mile <laughs> on either side of the border crossing. Right. The guy who was trying to become president but lost the election who was running on a platform of, I will stop this migration, he would have put tens of thousands of soldiers on the border instead of dozens. So a similar situation to here, <laughs> pretending to control it the is. border. Very it's actually a really fascinating comparison to what's happening between Colombia and Panama, because here you have this gap. In Chile's case, it's exactly the opposite of the Darien Gap. It's high mountain, it's desert, it's cold, but the effect is the same. People are dying trying to cross it. Right. Interesting. And the first village that they come to inside Chile is an indigenous village with no running water or electricity that has about 400 people, and it's completely overwhelmed by a 1,000 migrants a day. And there are military there trying to do what they can, but there's not much they can do. It's very, very similar to what's happening here in Panama. Interesting. Interesting. One last thing I wanted to ask you about, it's off the immigration topic, but this is how you came to my attention, is that you were in Armenia and in Karabakh during the war there about a, more than a year ago and have led trips to Armenia and also to trip to help rebuild an Armenian church that had been destroyed by ISIS in Syria. And I just wondered if you could just, if my listeners will indulge me, if you could tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Armenia is a fascinating country. and. More Americans need to know about it. I didn't know much about Armenia at all until the war started just over a year ago between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And somebody, one of my listeners texted me and said, you need to go cover that war. So I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And they filled me in on the details. Armenia is a very, very small country, two and a half million people or so, that is basically a beautiful house in a very bad neighborhood. They're surrounded by people who want to kill them. We would love nothing more than to see them be wiped off the face of the earth. And of course, Armenia has a long history of persecution like that by its neighbors, if you go all the way back to 1915 and even before. So I went to cover the conflict in the Nagorno-Karabakh, or as they call it, Artsakh, and just fell in love with the country. It's got such amazing history, a very uh, devout Christian country, and I was just blown away by the scenery and the history and the culture and the food and everything. And so I took my family back there in January of last year and then just realized that what Armenia really needs is for more people to know about it. There's no good reason why Armenia is not as popular a tourist destination as Venice or Paris or Prague or any of those other major European cities, because it's every bit as beautiful and actually much less trammeled. You know, you go to Europe in the summer now, and you're going to spend your entire vacation standing in lines. Right. You go to Armenia, and it's like Europe was 50 years ago. 
And so it's a hidden gem. I, I very often have people say, hey, man, I wish I could travel with you sometime. It looks like you go to some really cool places. So I just opened it up on Facebook one time and said, hey, I'm going back to Armenia in May. Anybody want to go? And we ended up with almost 20 people. Wow. We've got another trip going this May, and we've already got nearly 30 people signed up. And oh, by the way, my son went with me last May and liked it so much, he decided to move to Armenia. <laughs> and within a month, had met a girl and ended up getting engaged. And so this May, when we go over on the trip, we will also have a wedding to attend. Well, We're congratulations. About yeah. that. Sounds great. Now, whether people are interested in going with you on one of your trips or just to learn more about your reporting and photography and books, where uh, can they go? Where? What's your presence online? They can follow me on Facebook. I put a lot of content up at chuckholton.locals.com. You can Google my name and find out way more about me than you ever wanted to know. And uh, you find most of my reporting through the Christian Broadcasting Network, cbn.com, or other outlets like Newsmax. Okay, well, excellent. I really appreciate it. Chuck Holton, writer and war correspondent, American, but living in Panama, who has been observing, among other things, the flow of people, of illegal migrants through Panama. And I appreciate your joining us. And we may reach out again if there's some other newsworthy event down there that we want some information on. Thanks. Thanks for talking to us. Anytime. Enjoyed it. And finally, I wanted to talk about a couple of videos showing what the administration has been doing on immigration that came out or came to public attention recently and really got a, quite a bit of attention. One of them was from back in August, but it was just released through some kind of public records request of body cam footage of a police officer in Westchester, New York at the airport. For those of you who follow the issue, there was some coverage last fall of illegal immigrant teenagers being flown in the middle of the night to this airport, Westchester County, north of New York City. And from there, they were bussed all over. And it got a little bit of attention. Why is what's going on here? What's the administration doing? This body cam footage from the police officer, which because he's a government official, I guess it's the kind of thing you can request. It's public information. Shows the officer speaking to the contractors, the guys from private company that ICE hired to do this transportation. They're right there on video. You can see it talking about how the government is trying to keep these transfers hush hush, keep them on the down low. Over and over again, they were stressing this is not something they wanted the media to notice. And what it involved was the so called unaccompanied minors being transferred, and this happening all over the country, this is just where they got the video from, transferred from the border to be delivered by the government at taxpayer expense to their sponsors, which in almost all cases are illegal immigrants themselves who are their relatives, usually their parents, but also maybe other relatives, older brothers, aunts, uncles, that sort of thing. It really highlights the dishonesty of this flow of so-called unaccompanied minors. And the administration, even though in reaction to the report, said, no, there's no secrets about this. It's all just routine. Nothing to see here. Move along now. There's a reason they were telling these contractors to try to hide it and keep it out of public view, because this is 
this is a real problem for them. I mean, they're abusing the statutory provision that these people are being admitted under because these minors are not unaccompanied. Under federal law, if you're unaccompanied, it means you don't have a parent or guardian in the U.S. Most of these people have parents in the United States who were the ones who paid to have them smuggled here in the first place. And it's only supposed to cover minors who have been trafficked. And the difference between being trafficked and smuggled is key. Trafficking, human trafficking is exclusively when people are being coerced or tricked or kidnapped in some way for prostitution or forced labor, that sort of thing. That's what trafficking is about. Almost none of these people were involved in trafficking. Some of them may have been, but generally speaking, in almost all cases, they're smuggled, which is to say it's a voluntary transaction. Their parents or other relatives paid smugglers to bring them up to the border, and then they step over the border on their own and turn themselves in and pretend to be unaccompanied. So that first video really did get people's attention, and rightly so. The other video that got people's attention was from Fox News, was actually something that had happened relatively recently, which was the release down in South Texas of large numbers of single men. So these were not teenagers. These were not families. These were just guys basically coming to work at illegal jobs in the United States, and they were just being released. It was behind a closed-off area. They closed off part of a parking garage, so nobody would see what was going on. And then they were being driven to the airport or a bus station or what have you and just being released. And again, the administration did not want people to know about this. When it was revealed, they said, uh, you know, there's nothing to see here. It's all just routine. What's your problem? But this highlights the fact that this administration is abusing what is called parole in the immigration context. This isn't criminal parole. Immigration parole is where the executive branch has a very limited, narrow authority that Congress has given it to release people who have no right to be here, but only for urgent humanitarian reasons. And they're basically just kicking open that loophole and using it to release anybody they want to release. So again, another reminder for people of what this administration is doing. And it really is important that people be able to see it, that we have video that makes clear what's going on. I think it really clearly resonates with people more than just words on a page. It just adds to the pressure on this administration to somehow kind of backpedal and change course, but I just don't think they're going to do that. So the result is going to be doing themselves more and more political damage as they're pursuing these bad policies. And, you know, the big question is, can they at least sort of rein in the worst excesses of this anti-borders policy that Biden administration is pursuing before the midterm elections? Because there are people in the White House who realize what a vulnerability this is. And if not, will they be impelled to at least somewhat alter course if they experience what looks like now is building up to be a political disaster? for the president's party in the midterm elections. I don't know. We don't know what the answer is yet, but tune in in the future. We're going to keep this podcast going, obviously, every week, and hopefully we'll get some answers to those questions. This is Mark Krikorian. 
director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you'll tune in next week. <laughs>